Hello and welcome to another podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Today we have two guests who will be sharing their experiences as child care workers at the St. Michael's Residential School in Alert, British Columbia. Before I introduce our guests, allow me to give a brief background on residential schools in Canada. The government's purpose and policy on residential schools. The Bagot Commission of 1844 recommended the establishment of manual labor schools for Aboriginal children. Assimilation becomes government policy. The Diamond Report of 1879 recommended the creation of a system of industrial schools where children are intentionally separated from their parents to reduce the influence of, I quote, wigwam. The phrase, and again I quote, to kill the Indian, save the child, unquote, was often used to promote the schools amongst government and church officials. The purpose of these schools was aggressive assimilation. The indigenous ways of being was at odds with the agenda for the dominion of Canada. For the sake of expansion and cohesion of the land, forced attendance at residential schools was established to attempt the total erosion of the traditional kinship structures of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children. To destroy families and communities by forcibly removing children from them, And in 1894, an amendment to the Indian Act made attendance at residential schools compulsory for First Nations children. Parents who would try to prevent their children from attending schools risked going to jail. Children were separated from their siblings, their culture, threatened and prohibited from speaking their language. Unable to return home, all while instilling the belief inside them that they were savages who needed to be saved. Number of residential schools in Canada. In the year of 1896, there were 45 residential schools in operation. In 1960, there were 10,000 students attending 60 schools across Canada. In total, there were over 130 residential schools. It is estimated that 150,000 children attended residential schools and that approximately 6,000 children died. The last residential school closed in 1996, over 150 years after this inception. Our guests today are Dan Rubenstein and Nancy Tyson. When the Truth and Reconciliation reports were tabled in 2015, Dan and Nancy cast their minds back to 1970, the year they arrived in Canada from the United States. In order to obtain landed immigrant status, they looked for work and were offered jobs as childcare workers at St. Michael's Residential School in Allard Bay, British Columbia. From their first day, they were shocked by the way the children were treated. When they questioned the administrator and other staff, they were told that they did not understand the importance of discipline and consistency. They helped to circulate a petition asking the federal government to visit the school. The federal government had taken over responsibility of residential schools in 1969, but the influence of the Anglican Church remained strong. In December, a delegation from Ottawa arrived at the school. They asked to speak with staff alone, without the administrator. No one else spoke but Dan and Nancy. 
read a long list of concerns shared by elders in the community. Dan concluded by saying that the residential schools was an instrument of cultural genocide. The next day, Dan was called to the administrator's office and fired. Good afternoon, Dan and Nancy. How are you guys today? Thank you, Gordon. Uh, we're doing well. It's a rainy day in Ottawa, a rather somber day, and that's okay. Yeah, we're, we're sad as our all Indigenous people and many non-Indigenous Canadians about the findings in Kamloops. So it's, it's a somber time in the country. Yeah, for sure. The residential school in Kamloops has the same name, doesn't it? It's also, it's not, so we should not be mistaken that it's not the same residential school as in Kamloops as one where you worked at. Right? No, no, they're different schools. Yeah. The okay. one in Kamloops was under the Catholic Church and uh, the one we worked at was run by the Anglican Church until the government took over. Okay. As mentioned in your introduction, St. Michael's Residential School, Lament and Legacy is the only published book written by former childcare workers in residential schools. This testimony and honesty is so important to the collective pathway to healing and understanding as a nation. I'm wondering if you can tell us about the journey of writing this book. What made you decide to write it in the first place? And what was it like revisiting those years and what you had witnessed? Well, as you said, we were very shocked when we were hired. We didn't have experience with children. We didn't have experience with Indigenous children and Indigenous culture when we were new to Canada. And um, we were quite overwhelmed and really disturbed by what we saw in the school. And we were only there four months before Dan was fired. And then we left the island and we didn't have much contact with the children. We did some supply teaching in the public school. So sometimes we went to Alert Bay and we would see the children. We invited two little boys to come to the other island where we were living on Christmas break and March break, spring break. And we thought about the children a lot, but we didn't know what to do. And we stopped advocating. And that's really the reason we um, wrote the book is that now we regret that we were silent for so many years. And Dan can tell you the point at which we really realized the impact of the school. Because the school closed in 1974, just four years after we were there. And when it closed, we were so relieved that the children wouldn't be suffering that kind of harsh treatment and abuse. We thought the trauma was over and we were wrong. So Dan, do you wanna talk about the turning point? I went down to the Delta when the TRC tabled its reports. It was a beautiful summer day in June and there was life in the Delta Hotel. And I went in there and there were all the survivors. It was filled with emotion. It was emotion of satisfaction that finally, finally, they had a voice and they were being heard. So there was that sense of accomplishment. But then there were rooms with counselors and people were weeping and all the memories were coming back. And I went to the Anglican church, they had booths, all the booths there. And I said, you know, do you have a history of the church? Is there something, the memories were coming back and I, I got a brochure. And then I realized that the National Truth and Reconciliation Center was there and that I could give a statement and I wanted to give a statement in the moment. So I was taking the elevator upstairs to give the statement 
And there was a man in the elevator who turned out to be Ryan Moran, who was head of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And I was filled with emotion. I blurted out and I said, I worked in one of these schools and now I'm going upstairs to give my statement. And he said, Dan, you need to do more because we haven't heard from the former employees. They didn't have to testify. They weren't subpoenaed. We haven't heard that. You really need to tell this story fully. And then I realized that that day at the Delta, that was the day of the survivors and I was there to listen. But I came home and, and told Nancy this experience and she said, yes, we'll write it. So we started the writing and it was a, a long, long journey. And it was much, much harder to write because there was no records to go for. There were no records of the kids. We, I went to Rye Moran. I put in the same request the survivors put in to find out about me. And for Nancy and I, there was nothing. Like even, you know, we never existed in the school. I, uh, just like the, the survivors, I couldn't have proved I was there. You know, they, there was no records. But fortunately, Nancy has a wonderful memory, a wonderful memory. And... What we found when we sat down together to write it was that the memories, once we accessed them and opened up that door, were very vivid and very rich. They were like memories we never had before in our life or after, because the school was unlike anything we'd ever known before, anything we've known after, because the events were so shocking and so disturbing that we remembered oftentimes vivid details of what it was like. And we would have faltered on this journey, I believe, because we thought, who's ever going to want to hear this story? We, you know, it was hard to keep the faith. Nancy said, call up Reconciliation Canada, see if they can help us. We got the idea that we wanted to be reunited if there are any survivors from our class and I wanted to meet with them and apologize to them, not for anything that I did, because I was ethical, but just for having been at the school, having ever been paid for four months to be there. And I thought through Reconciliation Canada, we could make these connections. So when I, I called, I started to weep. I talked to the receptionist. I found myself weeping uncontrollably. I'm an auditor. I don't do things like this. This had never happened. And I was surprised. And this, the receptionist who was at Reconciliation Canada, she was used to tears and weeping and trauma. She said, Daniel, it's all right. Chief Joseph will be concerned about you and he will call you back tonight. I will tell him about you. Sure enough, 6.30 at night, I get a call coming in. It's a 604 area code, and it's Chief Joseph. And he says, I'm concerned about your healing, Dan. So he talked, and I wept some more, and said, basically, Dan and Nancy, you have to tell your story. The survivors had to tell it first. Now you go second, and you corroborate what they said. And... There are a lot of hard truths that have to be told and you have to tell them because that's going to help our healing. So that's how we got started. And then throughout the process, he helped to sustain us and other leaders, which we'll talk about. Okay. It was interesting because we learned that Robert Joseph, Chief Doctor Robert Joseph, who's the ambassador for Reconciliation Canada, he himself went through St. Michael's 
And he shared with us and he has shared publicly that at the school, he was physically, emotionally and sexually abused and left the school a broken person, a broken human being, and had to uh, do a lot of healing to arrive where he is now. He read our story multiple times, multiple drafts. The first time he read it, he emailed us and he said, I read it and I wept and I wept. And he said, but those were tears of healing. And it's through conversations like the ones we are having that we will start on the road to reconciliation. Right. What does it mean to be an ally, an advocate for Indigenous peoples and communities? Can you talk a bit about your life in your community? I think as allies or advocates, we even debated whether those were the terms we would use for ourselves because we want to honor and respect the fact that Indigenous people have their own voice and should speak about what they need. I heard one of the survivors in the last few days at one of the vigils say, people are phoning and reaching out and saying, how can we help? And he said, listen, open your hearts, open your minds and listen to what we are saying. So we want to listen, we want to support, but we certainly know that we're not the ones to lead for too long, I think, Indigenous people have had things done to them, not with them. In our community, we have talked to some church groups. We have talked to some book groups. We will do more of that. We're very happy to have the opportunity to speak with you to do this podcast. And also the media have picked up our story. And we want just wherever we go, we talk with people about the book and our experience. And we find that some people accept it and other people really struggle with it. And they say, well, was it really all that bad? You know, in the day, lots of children were strapped. And so I think an important part of our advocacy is to say to people, no, this was different. This was the erasure of Indigenous identity. It was an intentional program or institution to take children and make them non-Indian. If I could just add, really, I see our role is to have conversations with non-Indigenous and share with them things that they would never know because they haven't been blessed by the friendship that we've had with Chief Joseph and the things that we've learned about him and confide. So just, for example, yesterday, when we're going around and giving books, we start a conversation about the residential schools and people are receptive, but sometimes they're not. So for example, they'll say, well, you know, they, they could just get over this victimhood or something. And I said, well, my friend, Chief Joseph, he struggles with what the schools did to him every day of his life until after he dies and his children will struggle with it. And because of his courage and forbearance every day, he turns the corner out of that blackness and he finds hope. But this is going to take a long time. We have to be, this can't just be today and tomorrow when there's things. This has to be sustained, you know. So it's in conversation with non-Indigenous people, but sharing what we've learned from leaders. Right. Before we move on, uh, who is uh, Chief Dr. Robert Joseph for our audience? Robert Joseph is um, the head of Reconciliation Canada. 
Um, I think the official title is Ambassador for Reconciliation Canada. And uh, he's a strong Indigenous leader here in Canada. He also has traveled in the world. Other countries have asked him to come and speak. Uh, New Zealand is one I'm, I know, and I'm not sure about others. He has uh, two honorary doctorates. He's Order of Canada. He uh, is always being asked to speak. He's very well revered in the Alert Bay community. I love hearing him speak his native language. He speaks it so confidently, and he's a wonderful asset to Canada. Yeah, he's fortunate that uh, he did not lose his language like many children did while attending residential schools because they were, you know, they were punished if they spoke their native language. I also attended residential school when I was very young and uh, and we were often, you know, punished for, you know, doing even the simplest things. So having lived in the United States and Canada, what differences can you see in the perception of treatment of Indigenous people? You know, uh, this was a difficult question for me to answer because I know I'm learning a bit about Canada, but Nancy and I went through university in the United States. We never learned anything about the indigenous people of America, absolutely nothing. The history books, I mean, it, it was really as though, you know, there was a cursory mentions, Custer had to defeat somebody, but so little on the culture. And it was only as we tell in our story indirectly that we learned in 1970, we learned about the American uh, residential school system. And that's how I learned, you might have wondered and readers may wonder how in 1970 did I know the term cultural genocide? Well, that was because my mother who was an activist, when she heard that we were working in St. Michael's, she did the research and she contacted a family friend who was an anthropologist in the Southwestern United States and worked and knew about the Indian residential schools in the United States. And he said, they're cultural genocide and your son is doing the same thing. He's involved in cultural genocide, tell him to get out. But that whole history of Indian residential schools in the United States is written out of the history books. So when it comes to the residential schools, it appears to me that both countries ran residential school programs. They had the same awful tragic effects on many indigenous children. So just from the residential school point of view, uh, I, I'm not aware of a big difference. Can you talk a bit about what you witnessed in the treatment of students at St. Michael's Residential School? The uh, very first day, Dan and I were told by the matron to follow her. The school had been built in various layers. There was a sub-basement where the furnace and boiler room were. So we went down to the sub-basement and an Indian agent brought in four little children, two boys, two little girls. And the matron put on a heavy rubber apron with a big pocket and she pulled out a pair of heavy shears, heavy scissors, and she cut the children's hair very short. And then she cut off their clothing. She gathered up the hair and the clothing and she threw it into the firebox at the boiler. And with that new kindling going into the firebox, the blaze flared up and made a big whoosh. And the children were absolutely terrified. They didn't cry, they just stood trembling 
didn't say a word. And Dan and I were just aghast. And, and Dan said, is this necessary? And the matron looked at us and said, very matter of factly, lice. They all come in with lice. I have to do this. But it was dehumanizing. I think that was one of the most shocking and lasting images, but not the only one. There were lots of strappings for things that children do, for playful things, even lots of harsh discipline. As, and as you experienced, there was a ban on using uh, the uh, children's own language. And there was a ban on um, drawing um, in uh, traditional ways. One boy drew an orca. Uh, beautiful, beautiful design. And uh, one of the older staff took his paper and crumpled it and said, there will be no Indian ways around this school. Um, we were really concerned because the children were so obviously unhappy. It was just a palpable despair. And one night, uh, one of the boys who was 12 years old slipped out of the school and went down to the beach. Their bay was on an island, uh, is an island. The boy filled his pocket with rocks and walked into the ocean. Two fishermen heard him and pulled him out. And I thought, what 12-year-old what goes out alone in the dark, fills his pockets with rocks and walks into the ocean? We asked the administrator if the boy would get help, some support, some psychiatric treatment, some counseling. And the administrator said, I think he was just trying to get attention. He'll be fine. There was always an assumption that Indian kids were tough. That when children were sick, there was an infirmary and the matron who was not a nurse had the key to the infirmary. And we were told if the children ran a fever or had a sore throat, we were to give them penicillin. There was a big brown gallon jar full of penicillin tablets. And if the children had a rash or a reaction to penicillin, then we should switch to sulfa tablets, another big brown gallon jar full of sulfa tablets. And the children only went to the doctor if they were really ill. The other thing we saw, Gordon, is we saw students being cruel to one another. One girl tried to, well, held a little girl under the water of a pool. And I don't know whether she would have released the little girl if I walked away. It was a very troubling incident. Dan and I uh, got a little puppy and brought it to the residence. And two boys broke into our apartment and tried to hang the puppy. The janitor found the pup dangling from a rope off the fire escape. And we knew, we knew that cruelty breeds cruelty. And we saw that again and again at the residential school. My most lasting memory is every morning going in and there were 25 beds in these bare, bare cots with these bare, threadbare blankets. And every morning, every child wet their beds. So there was the overwhelming smell of the urine in the room. Uh, Eventually, we tried to organize some games and some basketball and things like that. But there, there wasn't much for the kids to do. When we took them to the school, you could tell just by their body language before they walked in the school, they dreaded going to school, that they were kind of ostracized. There were no recreation facilities for them? No, not really. Not when we no. were there earlier. They, you know, uh, lots of trades. Uh, the, the children were taught manual work skills, which 
may not have been very ethical. Maybe those were really work farms, but at least they had activities. When we were there, the kids would often just walk around in the playground, kick a rock or kick a can or something. And then one of the staff said, let's try to organize some activities for the kids. Okay. Who are some leaders? I think I asked you this already. Allies and activists that you admire, respect, and think you mentioned uh, Robert Joseph as one of them, likely. Many That's others? Uh, yeah. Yes, there are. It's one of the, the wonderful thing that's happened as a result of writing this story and, and now also, you know, telling our story, for example, to you and getting some, trying to get some publicity for around some of the findings that we talk about is that we're, we're coming in contact with more and more indigenous leaders. So another one is Phyllis Jack Webstad. She's the founder of the Orange Shirt Society. And I had the opportunity to talk with her and she is such a strong, outstanding leader. We have great respect for Murray Sinclair. We, you know, and, and the work that he's done. Rye Moran, we got to know him a bit. Then there's Teresa Edwards, the founder of Legacy of Hope. She's an amazing person. Bishop Mark McDonald, he's the first indigenous, uh, national indigenous bishop of the Anglican Church, a very philosophical guy and a very deep thinker. Then there's Raymond Curry, uh, he's a, a settler. We were so profoundly shocked by the TRC findings that he organized Circles of Reconciliation, which is going quite strong. It's really trying to bring indigenous and non-indigenous peoples together to start conversations. So there are many people, wonderful people we met. I think I'd also like to add that, that really we think all survivors, including you, Gordon, are allies and, and we respect the strength and uh, the forgiveness that we have heard from so many survivors. Also, I get inspiration from indigenous writers, poets, novelists. There's amazing work out there and I try to read as much of it as I can. It's often difficult for survivors to talk about uh, what they went through. You always have to put up a wall against your emotions when, when we talk about what we went through. But I also want to say that there are a lot of good Canadians out there, non-Native, non-Aboriginal Canadians, who really are genuinely good people and, and are supportive and empathetic, <laughs> understand what we went through, and uh, really, we really do receive a lot of support from, from Canadians uh, uh, throughout the country. And lately, we've been getting a tremendous amount of support at the Legacy Hope Foundation people uh, sending us messages through our site or calling our executive director, Teresa Edwards, thanking her for, you know, for the work she's doing. And she is a tremendous, tremendous leader. And uh, she's a real inspiration to us uh, to work with her at the Legacy Hope Foundation. We're getting kind of close to the end of our podcast. And, and I have a couple more questions. Uh, this one is about reconciliation. And if you have a message for Canadians about reconciliation and how we can make Canada a better country to live in, what would you say? I'd say listen to Indigenous leaders, consult with Indigenous people, 
work together and make sure the government at all levels, federal, provincial, territorial, municipal, that they deliver on the promises they make. Dan? Yeah, the, the listening and really hearing what's said and really embracing conversations. You know, conversations like we're having right now. If we hadn't started out on this journey, we wouldn't be having this conversation today and I'd, I'd be the lesser for it. So embracing the conversations, maybe today is, is a moment for, for shared healing and, and maybe something good can come out of something terrible. Yes, it's kind of coincidental that we have you on as guests on this podcast when this whole issue of finding these 215 burial sites at residential school in Kamloops. But it is just pure coincidental. We didn't actually plan to have you guys on at this time. So I just wanted to make that clear. And uh, the last part of our podcast has to do with telling something funny because, uh, you know, Indigenous people are, are resilient and enjoy laughing and telling jokes, you know, with each other and uh, telling funny stories. Maybe it's part of uh, what helps us get through difficult times and kind of the resiliency we've built up over the years. It's just a natural, natural way we are with uh, with each other. I wonder if you have a joke or something or a funny story to tell, we could kind of end this podcast that way. I'd love to share an incident that happened when we were in Alert Bay. There was a totem raising, which was wonderful to attend, and the children got to go. Children weren't allowed to go to the potlatch in the evening, but after we'd settled the children, Dan and I went. And there were young people from the Hunt uh, family bringing gifts to people. And we didn't expect any gifts, particularly we were working at the residential school and we thought people might very much resent us. But no, there was a big pile of gifts accumulating at Dan's feet. Dish towels and an ashtray and a beautiful woven wall hanging. And, and I know well, this is also strange because I knew that uh, the society was matriarchal. But Dan's getting all the presents. And then one of the young men came over and he said to Dan, I know you're one of my cousins, but I can't place you. Now, Dan has very dark complexion and dark black hair, and we've been camping all summer, so his skin was nicely tan. And Dan just looked at the young man, and he laughed, and he said, yeah, I'm from a different tribe, the tribe of Israel. I'm Jewish. I'm from New York. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, yeah. (laughs) I've been talking to Dan Rubenstein and Nancy Dyson, and they've written a book called Residential Schools, Lament and Legacy. So if you're, uh, you know, you're looking for a book to read about residential schools, you might want to consider that one. It's been a sad and tragic time in our history with Aboriginal people with regards to residential schools and the ongoing impacts that we have to live with today. Uh, I want to thank you for sharing your experiences, your time, your knowledge, and you really are wonderful allies for the Legacy of Hope Foundation and all Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, I want to thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts. Miigwech. Miigwech thank you very you. much for having us on and allowing us to speak to your listeners. Miigwech. Thank you. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, 
please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.